Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. God speaks to us from Psalms 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did that day Emma saw in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Uh, why are you here? Like, what are we doing here? What's the point of doing this week over week, Sunday morning, getting together? Why do you show up? Why is it important? Is it even important that we're gathered here together in this room? Um, you know, we often refer to this gathering as corporate gathered worship. Uh, why? Why do we do it? And why do we feel as though it's an important spiritual practice? Well, today uh, we're going to continue our series uh, looking at uh, various psalms. Uh, and each psalm that we've been looking at week over week has been a psalm focusing on spiritual practices, important spiritual practices in our lives. And today we're going to be looking at this, what we're doing right now, corporate worship. Why is corporate worship, gathering physically together with Christians in this kind of space, an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And why is this gathered environment so important for our ongoing growth and developments as followers of Jesus? So with that big question in mind, what I want to do is I want to take a look at defining some things. I want to consider and define what we mean by worship when we speak of worship. Take a look at what we mean by corporate when we say corporate worship. And then finally, putting all of that together, what does it mean to be in corporate worship? Right? So what is worship? What is corporate? What is corporate worship? All right, let's take a look. At first, what is worship? So for many of us, depending on what your, uh, your experiences or background has been to the church, for many, when we think about worship, uh, especially in a church context, we inevitably end up thinking about music. Like, I still do that. I still immediately tend to think about music, and there's a reason why. Right? We have worship teams who sing worship songs, uh, sung and led by worship leaders, all in the context of a worship service. And so it's kind of natural that we begin to think about things like songs. However, as we're going to see in Psalm 95, and then also all throughout Scripture, worship en encompasses far more, far, far more than just singing. In fact, in many ways, worship is being done at nearly every moment of our day. All day, every day, we are worshiping in some way. And probably the, the most concise and direct way to define worship uh, is done by Paul in his famous 
uh, description in Romans 12, where he says this. Let me just read it to you. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there's a few interesting statements that Paul's making there about worship that I want to hone in on. First, notice the way in, in uh, what I just read, the way that Paul, he interweaves the body and the spirit when describing our worship. He says that offering our bodies is spiritual. Or to put it another way, if you want to worship God spiritually, it must include your body. Now that might sound to some obvious, but that's actually not a universally held belief in the broad landscape of religions and assumptions about worship. What I mean by that is for many Eastern religions, for example, the soul or the spirit might be paramount but in that uh, emphasis on the soul and spirit, there leaves little room for thinking much of the physical. Alternately, in more modern or naturalist or a-religious environments, the spiritual really isn't that important. Instead, the physical becomes paramount. And so physical pleasure, physical experiences, those are the things that we ought to focus most attention on. But in Christianity, it's not an either-or, but it's very much a both-and. So much so that, as Romans 12 argues, Worship is both physical and spiritual. So just note that. But the other thing that we see in uh, Paul's um, argument there is that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, one uh, biblical commentator, when uh, reflecting on that notion of offering our bodies as living sacrifice, says this. He says that living sacrifices represents the totality of one's life and activities of which our body is the vehicle of expression. In other words, the biblical understanding of worship is that it is the submission of one's entire life, all activity, to the service of God. Now that said, it's probably worth stopping and at least just taking a moment to recognize that for some, that sounds like an enormous commitment. Every activity, every moment of my day is to be worshipped before God. I mean, for some, perfectly fine with, I'll go to church regularly, occasionally, I'll do some good things, I'll try to be a good person, but this whole notion of giving my whole life to something seems quite unreasonable. And to be fair, to a degree, I actually would agree with you, giving our lives completely and fully to something actually is quite unreasonable when we consider the various things that maybe we tend to give our whole lives to. Right? Depending on what we give our whole lives to, we could actually be in a position where we are harmed by doing such a thing, not uh, growing or developing in positive kinds of ways. I mean, the question really becomes, though, what is it that we are giving our lives to? Because here's the thing. If we are not giving our lives fully and completely to God, just know that you are giving your life fully and completely to something. We cannot help it. We will lay our lives down before something. I mean, some of us, we have offered our bodies as living sacrifices to our careers or to our families or to other successes because we think all of those things will fulfill us. At least from the Christian perspective, we're looking to those things to give us what only God can give us. But here's the problem. 
when we give our lives fully to our careers, our families, or anything else, we will inevitably give far more to those things than those things are ever going to give back to us. Because all of them will not satisfy, and we know it to be true, and yet we still give our lives fully and completely to them. But here's the difference between giving our lives to those things and giving our lives to service to God. Is that giving our lives fully to God, it always results in the exact opposite. It always results in us receiving far more from God than is ever actually given to him. That's the nature of the gospel, that God gives us much. And in return, we simply give him our lives. When we offer ourselves as these living sacrifices to the service of God and his purposes, I mean, we are given joy and hope and faith and love and acceptance not based on anything that we have done. And so if that's the case, right, if that's what living sacrifices mean, how then uh, are we to actually give our lives fully? And this is where I want to now maybe look at uh, Psalm 95. What does it look like? All right, look at the ways uh, Psalm 95 calls us to engage our whole person. It's very interesting to me. There's various clues all throughout. Verses 1 and 2 tells us, uh, calls us to worship with our emotions, to sing and to shout joyfully. Right, so giving our whole lives uh, as living sacrifices, at least in some way, means to worship God with our emotions, to be joyful. Verse 6 and 7 calls us to worship by bowing down, which is a physical action that represents a submission of my will. Right? I'm laying down my desires and submitting to the will of God. And then the second part of verse 7 tells us to hear God's voice and to listen to him. I mean, this is an engagement of the mind. It's a thoughtfulness to consider what God says to us. So here we see that worship uh, is truly an act of the whole person, and in particular, it's an act of our emotions, of our will, and our mind. That's what it means to live a life fully and completely in the service of God. And if we lose any element of, if we lose worship with our emotions, with our will, with our mind, then there's something wrong, flawed, in our worship to him. Let me explain to you what I mean. So if we can hear and even enjoy an amazingly intellectually stimulating sermon, but then we're never moved emotionally by it, there's something wrong with our worship. If we, can, uh, if we are exuberant in our emotional expressions of worship before God, but then we never submit our will to him. And there's something wrong with our worship. Or if I beat my will into submission to obey God's law, but I never experience the emotion of joy before him, there's something wrong with my worship. Worship is the engagement of the whole self. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice to worship. Now that said, what does that have to do with corporate worship? Right? Of course, we said this whole idea was supposed to be about corporate. It seems like everything I just said has to do with uh, my own personal life, which of course it does. But let's consider now what corporate means and how it will eventually play into what we've just described as living sacrifices. So secondly, what does corporate mean? Well, first, one of the obvious aspects of Psalm 95 is the plurality of it. Everything in this passage is in the plural. 
constantly says, let us do such and such thing. I mean, even the you and the use uh, of, the path, of the psalmist here, he's using plural nouns here in Hebrew. This passage is calling the hearers to join together in order to do the things that have been described all throughout the passage. This is a corporate psalm. And so with that in mind, it's important to note the extent to which the gathering together in an assembly was actually one of the greatest, uh, was of greatest importance to the Jewish people as a religious practice. It's also been paramount all throughout church history. And it's interesting that it's only been in more recent modern times that the idea of a personal faith has even become a, a thing. Historically, I don't know that the idea of a personal faith would have made uh, as much sense as maybe it does to many today. What we're seeing in Psalm 95, and again, all throughout biblical and church history, is that there is a corporateness necessary to our faith. A corporateness necessary to worship. I mean, the word church, for example, we are here in a church. That word literally means assembly. When we, when we say this, you know, we, often, or we say this often around here, is that the Bible actually has no categories for a Christian who is a Christian but does not assemble with other Christians. It almost, the Bible's almost always assuming that Christians are together in an assembly within a church, barring, of course, certain extreme circumstances. Being a Christian means that we are part of the church. And there are different ways to understand the church. Of course, you've got uh, the church meaning a local body of believers like we have here at Redeemer East Harlem. The church can also mean the, the universal church, which rever refers to all Christians across time and space. But understanding the nature of the church is actually vital for us understanding why this kind of gathering is so important. Because the local and the universal church are actually beautifully bound together. I mean, one day all believers will come together as the universal church to be with Christ himself. And what a beautiful day that will be. But right now, as we come together in this room, we are reflecting and anticipating the glory of that coming day. I mean, this assembly right now is a glimpse of the universal assembly that will come one day. This is why over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel assembled to hear the word of the Lord and engage in the practices and ceremonies. This is why over and over again, the New Testament admonishes Christians to not neglect gathering together as we see in Hebrews 10. We should not neglect being together. And why is it that the Old Testament and the New Testament have such a high emphasis on this? Why does Psalm 95 focus all this attention on these practices being done corporately together in an assembly? Well, to understand why, we also need to understand the biblical teaching of God's covenant people. Essentially, while God is, in one sense, saving people, in another sense, God is also saving a people. He's drawing a people together. You know, in, the, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the, the picture has always been that there will be a people who God will call his own. Uh, in 1 uh, Peter 2, says that as a result of God's mercy, that those who were once not a people have now become a people, and the church is that people of God whom God calls his own. And while the, the New Testament certainly over and over again shows individuals coming to faith, we do not actually come to faith to just become isolated, redeemed individuals. 
but rather to become a redeemed people known as the bride of Christ or the body of Christ. Let me maybe put it this way. So Philippians 3 speaks of how Christians, uh, the, our, the true citizenship of a Christian is in heaven. And that's another way of describing God's covenant people, a citizen of heaven. And what makes someone a citizen? You know, as an example, I'm an American citizen. But what makes me an American citizen? I'm an American because I'm part of a collective group of people who are also American. There's no way to be an American without other Americans. And for Christians, there is no being a Christian without understanding the corporate collective reality of being a people called by God in Christ. So, just to recap, worship is giving and engaging our whole selves. Corporate is the reality of being a part of a people of God, not just an individual Christian, but part of a community that God has called his own. So finally, all that said, what does that now have to do with corporate worship? What does corporate worship mean? Um, when writing about different forms of historic worship, uh, philosopher uh, Jamie Smith he notes this, and maybe some of you have heard this before, but he puts it this way. That worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our love. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. That last part. Worship is where God does something to us. In other words, God has chosen to work in the midst of his people as they come together to worship him. Church, this gathering, this assembly is not just a chance for us to show our devotion to God. Rather, church, this assembly, corporate worship, is an opportunity for God to show his devotion, his faithfulness, his passion, compassion and power to us. It's God who is at work here in this room. And so if worship is, is the gathering of those who are giving their whole lives to God, then what is it that God is doing here in our midst? What is it that we have come here to experience? Why is this room and this gathering so important? Well, while there are probably many things that God is doing, there are three in particular that I want to highlight. Three things that God does week over week in the life of his people. The first would be this. God produces a solidarity as we gather together. Gathering together in corporate worship brings solidarity that solidifies one's place in the community of faith, in the people of God. I mean, think about the things that you are really passionate about. Something that your life might even revolve around. Because while it's great to be passionate about something, we also know that there is a whole new level of passion that is created when we get to join with other people with that same passion. I've shared this with you before, but I think about uh, what it was like for me in the 90s, growing up in the 90s. When I was a kid, I loved Star Wars. Loved Star Wars so much. But I loved Star Wars in that like weird in-between time when it really was not cool to like Star Wars. And so you had like the late 70s, early 80s, movies come out, they're, they're super cool, all the rage. And then later in the 90s, you have the new movies that came out, and then they became very popular again. I liked Star Wars right in that desert period 
when it wasn't cool for me to have my room plastered in Star Wars posters, to have all the Star Wars Pez dispensers lining my room, and for my AOL instant messenger screen name to be Jedi Reflexes. My wife, my wife, God bless her, still dated me even after finding out that my instant messenger name was Jedi Reflexes. We had a lot of good conversations. She had a lot of good conversations with Jedi Reflexes. I had no game. I don't know how I, how we end up together, I don't know. By God's grace. But let me tell you, there were, in that desert period, when I think back on that time, there were actually several kids that I went to school with who also really loved Star Wars. And so when we would gather together, so to speak, our love for this thing that was marginalized by everyone else, this love was affirmed. We found strength to carry on. Why? Because being around other people with similar kinds of passion solidifies you, brings a solidarity to that, being part of that community. And we are communal beings who crave solidarity with like-minded people. And what better way to solidify commitments to a cause or a purpose than to gather with those also committed to doing the same. And so in this way, God is at work in us, through us, to one another, to create that solidarity, that community of faith. And to neglect the gathering together is to neglect that opportunity to be deepened in our experience of being part of the people of God. The second thing is there also is illumination that comes. God brings illuminations about himself through our gathered worship together. What do I mean by that? The Christian church is the most diverse body of people to assemble every single week for the exact same purpose. Nothing even remotely close comes near to the diversity of the Christian church. No other world religion or social club or political party can claim that kind of diversity. There's an opportunity to unify together under one banner, despite the differences in economics or ethnicity or political affiliation, whatever it might be. I mean, how beautiful is it that when white, black, rich, poor, Republican, Democrat unify under Christ? I mean, this is the most beautiful when we see it amongst God's people, especially in the local church. And often it becomes a testament of what the power of the gospel can do. It takes people from all tribes and nations and tongues and makes them one people. I mean, we experience that to some degree right now in this room. As you look around this room, the diversity of experiences and ethnicities is vast. But even beyond that, right now, though we are gathered together as Redeemer East Harlem, we are also joining Christians in Tribeca and the Upper East Side at Parchester, the Bronx, in East New York, Brooklyn, in Topeka, Kansas, in Seattle, Washington, Tokyo, Japan, Shanghai, China, Point Noir, Congo, all over the world. People are doing the exact same thing that we are doing right now, proclaiming the same truths that we are proclaiming right now. And in my opinion, one of the greatest apologetics of the Christian faith is that there is no central, cultural, focal point of the Christian faith. Christianity does not prioritize one region or one language or one cultural expression. We are not bound by the customs or the language of the Middle East, which is, of course, where our faith came out of, or in Asia or the West. None of these regions 
get to claim Christianity. It is one of the most diverse groups of people that exist. The gospel is for all people, all cultures, all languages, and all places. And as we come together in that diversity, as we consider the ways that God is at work throughout the world and in various places, we begin to see different aspects of him that we would otherwise miss. There's illumination to the person of God in different ways. You know, we have different experiences that give us different insights into the person of God. Whether you were, you know, grew up as a preacher's kid or an atheist, whether you're an investment banker at a bank or you're a janitor who cleans the building, if, whether you're white or you're black, native or immigrant, suburbanite or urbanite, Baptist or Presbyterian, we all come with all this different experience into this diverse body. And as we do that, with those experiences, we begin to see God in different ways, new ways, because of that diversity. There are extraordinary things that we can learn from one another about God. And to disconnect ourselves from the local body and not participate is to miss the aspects of God that we can see through one another and in one another's experiences. We gather together so that we might know God in richer and deeper ways. One pastor, Tim Keller, he put it this way. If you ever hear me say, a pastor once said, it's probably Tim Keller that said it. <laughs> but he said, you will never really know God unless you corporately praise, corporately pray, corporately study the word of God. You have to do it with others or you will never know him at all. You'll get a distorted little view of him unless you are willing to read, to pray, to talk, to worship, to praise together all the time. That's the reason corporate Christian worship is so crucial. We are missing out on the fullness of God, experiencing the fullness of God, if we neglect the gathering together. The last thing is not only is this gathering an opportunity for solidarity, not only is it providing illumination, but it's also providing us a reminder, a reminder of God's gospel to us. When we are together, we are reminded of what has actually made Christians a community. Back to our passage in 95, Psalm 95. Consider those the final verses in verses 7 through 11. Um, those verses are recalling something that took place in Israel's history. And you can read about um, what the psalmist is describing in Exodus 17. You'll see that story. But essentially, Israel was in the desert on their way to the promised land. Uh, and the land uh, was to be their rest. If you know the story, they have, of course, been liberated from bondage in Egypt. They were heading to the promised land. And so this promised land was to be their rest. But in the midst of their journey, they began to ignore the word of the Lord. And they began to doubt his promises. And even though they'd been set free from the bondage in Egypt, they now begin to grumble. And they begin to wonder why they even left Egypt. And as a result, verse 11 says... They shall never enter my rest. Why? Because they had forgotten God's promises. They had forgotten the gospel that had been given to them, this liberating gospel. They forgot what God had done. And God presents a promise of rest. And yet, even for us today, we often do the same. We forget those promises. We forget what God has actually accomplished for us. We forget what it took to actually make us a people. We become overwhelmed by the burdens of life. 
We get distracted by the things that take our affections off of God. We become self-consumed in various ways. We forget about his faithfulness. And so as a result, we need constant reminders of God's faithfulness. And the gospel is that reminder. And it's that reminder that we get every single week as we gather together. When we don't gather together, we will be like the people in Israel, wondering why we even left Egypt. When we gather together, we're reminded of what it took for us to actually be made God's people. It's a reminder that God has proven his faithfulness and commitment to us in Jesus. It's a reminder of the perfect and sinless life that Jesus lived for you. It's a reminder of our sin and our shame that Christ takes to the cross. It's a reminder that gra the grave has not uh, ultimately had victory, but that Christ has had victory because we know that he was raised back to life, crushing the powers of sin and death for you so that you might be his people. He sends us his spirit and he unifies us to himself and to one another. We are the church because of the work of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. And so hear this. Corporate worship is our opportunity to regularly, weekly, be reminded of God's faithfulness. It is a regular reminder of the gospel and the reminder that he is calling us to be part of his people, a people that he has saved by his grace through faith in Jesus. And if we neglect gathering together, we miss the opportunity to be encouraged and to be reminded. And so today, be reminded and be encouraged that the God of grace offers you rest. And so worship him with your whole life and do so together with a body of believers who desire to do the same until one day when this local gathering joins the universal gathering with Christ in all eternity. May God keep us until that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were once not a people, and yet now we are, by work of your hand, through the work of your Son. Lord, we thank you for the global church and the beauty that is revealed through all the different ways that you are at work around the world. We thank you for our brothers and sisters on every continent doing the exact same thing that we are doing right now. How wonderful and beautiful it is to be able to call them family, despite all the differences that exist between us. But we also thank you for this local congregation, a small little glimpse of that larger body. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here Lord, I'm always so encouraged by the ways that so many in our church community love and care for one another. Opportunities to remind each other of the gospel, to be there for one another, to pray for one another, to solidify our place in the people of God, and to even reveal to us new aspects of yourself that we might have otherwise missed. We thank you for this church. We pray blessings upon our congregation. Help us to be a church that continues to grow in ways that are honoring to you. That more people might experience this gospel that has made us a people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.